0: friends. It's good to see you again. I'm Brian. I'm Joe.
1: Let's Let's start start the show. Well usually we're recording in the afternoon but we can still call this morning.
0: Good morning.
1: Good morning. Okay. Nice to see you.
0: And the first podcast we've ever done in our new office.
1: Right. There's nothing on the walls we barely got the floors cleaned like this morning you know um <laughs> there's no yeah it it feels like a like a almost like a crazy person room right where you send people with you know they need some medication yeah you know you send them in the padded room
0: it's almost like that yep also it feels like a dream come true
1: at the same time right yep yep very exciting very exciting and we have um some well actually i was going to say our second podcast that we're going to record in here will actually be the first one that releases. It'll release before this one. So it's all, it's all crazy. So that, but we have some props in here that I'm pretty excited about with um, the Ozark Club, Leo Lamar. All people we're going to introduce, but first we need to introduce our guests. Who do we have with us today, Joe?
0: We've got... Ashley McCann of the Great Falls History Museum. Oh, we remember her. Welcome. Welcome back. Thanks. And also um, the historian for the Ozark Club and Leo Lamar type subjects, Mr. Ken Robison. Did I I, I get it right?
2: You bet. Yes. All right.
0: Welcome, Ken. Thanks for joining us.
2: Good to be with you.
0: So um, as Brian and I were kind of setting up this morning, um, we wanted to refresh our memories again and just do a quick Google search for in, any information we could find on Leo Lamar so we could kind of be following along with you a little easier. And uh, we both found the same article. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, you probably found the same one I did. And I described a few facts. And he was like, oh, yeah, that's that's the article. And uh, And then something was like – something was like – in the back of my mind, I was like, there's something familiar now about Ken's name. And then we decided to look up the author of that article, and it was your article. So we've been boning up on your article, so that all kind of made sense accidentally. that's If I could go back and, and do it like a professional would and really plan out what I would do, I would, I would have done that. So I'm glad that we accidentally you know, really did our homework for you. So... <laughs>
1: Yeah. And it's a beautiful article. I found a couple others. And the funny thing is, is uh, the last podcast we did about Great Falls history, we had Ashley on who's with us again. And then we also had Ike Kaufman. And the three people that had input on the the, one of the other articles I found were two of them that are on this podcast and one that was on the last podcast. So you guys somehow we we stumbled into the the best people to talk to about Great Falls history, (laughs) apparently, because you're the people everybody finds to do this. If you say so, I guess so. <laughs>
3: okay. Yeah.
1: What? So, Ken, to start out, what got you started
0: going down, going down this trail? Yeah. What's your relationship to the Ozark Club and the Leo Lamar subject?
2: After a long Navy career, I got moved back to Montana, and I knew that I wanted to, since I had control of my time and focus, I wanted to spend time with Montana history and so research and writing and that led me to a little contest I conducted on my own part and that was, what was the most neglected part of Montana history? Well, there are a number and this was 2001, let's Hmm. say, this is the time frame. Women's history was Still pretty neglected, although there was a beginning of a real quest to make up for lost time. And since then, of course, there's been a whole lot done and good work uh, recognizing a lot of the uh, overlooked uh, women's history stories from Montana. But even more neglected than women's history was black history. Uh, some of the other ethnic groups, uh, I'd say the Japanese, maybe the Chinese were a close second, but frankly, African American history had been left out of Montana history. And of course, when I'd ask people about it, they'd say, well, the population was so small and, and they just weren't very visible in the communities, and I didn't really accept that, so um, along the way as I've um, had the time I've uh, focused on black history research, uh, started first really in Fort Benton where I spent a lot of time at the Overholzer Historical Research Center as a historian there, and they have a really early, African American history story. So I, I started researching that, and and like all other communities, uh, blacks have been left out of that history. And of course, I live here in Gray Falls, and in those days, you didn't have uh, digital newspapers on the internet, <laughs> and, you mm-hmm. know the the luxury of uh, quick research uh, that, in many ways, you can do today. That even two decades ago, you couldn't do. So a lot of microfilm, a lot of hard copy newspaper, at both the library and the history museum, led me through my quest to begin to fill the void in black history. And frankly, it was a a real adventure because nothing had been written, nothing had been done, and there were no sources of, of research really, except hardcore, go to the newspapers or go to, well, you couldn't go to books because they'd been left out of uh, really all of the histories of Great Falls except two rare exceptions. One is a 1939 Works Progress Administration WPA publication called Great Falls Yesterday, and it had five fantastic stories of of African Americans in the Gray Falls area, um, and most of them were women, which was even a little more surprising, maybe for 1939. Right, and the other was a, a very small but important presence in in a book that uh, Bill and Bill Ferdell and his wife had done. On Cascade County history, they had actually included—I don't know—four or five, maybe six photos in a large collection of photos of African Americans in, and and so you know they at least acknowledged the presence and had did a little bit with it. So, uh, based on that and a whole lot of time spent uh, researching newspapers, I began to build a file uh, because it, it was interesting to see how the two Great Falls newspapers and people today that uh, only know the Fading Tribune, <laughs> that's a story in itself. <laughs> right, right, right and the uh, and the Gray Falls Leader that they don't know about because uh-huh. it ceased publication, I think, maybe in the late 1960s. But from the beginning of Gray Falls, uh, we had two dueling newspapers, one Republican, one Democrat, one focused on business, and the other focused on cultural and social issues. And you can kind of guess probably which was <laughs> which. The, the, the Lincoln Republican newspaper, the leader, had great coverage of black community activities. And that was a surprise, but but in some ways they were so good with their coverage that they didn't mention race. And let's say in the 1890s and 1900, those early years of Gray Falls, that's, and, and frankly in Montana, that's really rare not to have colored or negro or whatever the term they used and often it was the term colored but to have no race indicated and yet it was a story about a a black couple being married or something like that. So I had to build that knowledge of who, who were the members of the black community and it led me eventually to some 1300 names and when the Great Falls Genealogy Society published their two-volume uh, Great Falls Settlers, Early Settlers of Great Falls is the title of their two-volume set of sort of biological stories of Great Falls residents up to 1920, I had 1,100 stories in there of African Americans. Wow. And so, you know, that kind of kicked off my, my uh work on on that ethnic group and very early among the stories I found <coughs> was the story of the Ozark Club and it had gone through a couple of iterations as early as the early 1900s there was something called the Ozark Club. It, it really had no direct relationship to what we're going to talk about mostly and that's Leah Lamar and the Ozark Club mm-hmm. but they had the the environment in the, in the 1890s that set the stage for, for blacks in the Gray Falls community was, I guess you could roughly characterize it as it, it was a, along with all of Montana, it was sort of a, a, a very harsh, but on the other hand, somewhat softer form of discrimination and segregation. Mm-hmm. You were, if, if you were an African-American, you must live on the lower south side, meaning between Central Avenue and, and the then non-existing 10th Avenue South. There was no 10th Avenue South right, back right, then. Right, right. That grew later. But in those blocks, headed south from Central Avenue and up to about 12th Street, 9th or 12th Street, that was the Lower South Side, and uh, it was a working-class ethnic community. The smelters had drawn in huge numbers of immigrant uh, residents working at the smelter. The difference was those smelter-working foreign um, uh, immigrants that had flocked in could work at the smelter because they were white. But blacks couldn't join the unions, and therefore they were shut out of all the, all the smelter and refinery jobs. Um, so the
0: best paying jobs they, they couldn't. The do. best
2: paying jobs they were shut out of. But um, so anyway, I started uh, running across the stories related to the Ozark Club, and uh, pretty quickly recognized that this this was really a powerful story, and. Uh, so I started building a, a file on the Ozark Club, and and as I dug deeper and deeper, I found more and more, and it it just turned into this incredible story of um, here here's a a black owned nightclub on the Lower South Side at a time when African Americans couldn't go to any of the white nightclubs on Central Avenue or over in Black Eagle or wherever they were, Jockey Club or the Park Hotel or the 3D, uh, you couldn't go if you were black. You were not admitted in. Uh, rare exception might be uh, uh, if, if you were uh, – we'll, we'll talk about a, a character by the name of Jack Mahood later, but uh, to, just to – to make the point, Jack might take one of the musicians from the Ozark Club and their wives out to dinner, and they couldn't go to any of the clubs, but they could go in the back door of the park uh, terrace room and sit in the back booth, and they would be served. And uh, I mean, that was the exception to uh, to, to access. So wow, uh, here here was the that. That was the situation in Great Falls at the time.
1: Well, and I think, I think Joe and I can relate because we've as we've been kind of diving into the history, we're finding it pretty interesting. I, I personally, and this this is no offense to Ashley, but I didn't even know we had a history museum. And I've, I've, I lived here for nine years, and then I was gone for a little bit, and I've been back for quite a while. I didn't know until a few months ago we even had a history museum.
3: I didn't know it growing up. Okay. And so <laughs> yeah.
1: but but now now I'm seeing that like you guys are doing some great work. And so like Joe and I've been in there several times now. Uh, you know our first podcast, the research that we've been doing. We actually have a trivia night and we we've done like specific categories just on Great Falls history. This article was very helpful, the one that that you wrote about um, the Ozark Club and Leo Lamar. But we can relate because we were thinking like how can how can even I I, w- I was under the understanding that It would be hard for even a black person to own a business back in the day, regardless of what city they were in. And so even just to have him own a business, and then it seems, and I don't want to jump ahead because there's actually one building I want to talk about before we go into the Ozark Club. But um, it, it became so popular that everything was segregated, but then they're like, well, well. Maybe your club doesn't have to be segregated, Leo. It's kind of, it's kind of a cool club, right? Like, we'll keep yeah. all the rest of these. It, that's what it seems like, that his club became so popular that he's like, you know, we won't be segregated. We'll, we'll bring people in. And, and that this he seems like a dynamic character that we will get into. But you mentioned the, the lower south side is where, where the, the ethnic people all had to live in Great Falls. I previously, I worked for an organization called Child Bridge. And we we go to churches and we'd uh, recruit foster families. That's essentially, that's the quick elevator speech of what we would do. And so I would look up churches and try to find pastor contacts and, and see if I can schedule things. Well, I found this church that I'd never heard of beca- before called the Union Bethel African Methodist Episcopal, Episcopal Church. <laughs> and it still like had a listing on Google Maps. And so I drove to the church and i didn't find any contact there it is a beautiful building that's still in existence and ended up like i did a little research back then you know over a year and a half ago and um realized that like this is a very historic building right here in great falls that was like the the, one of the ethnic centers aside from the Ozark club for great falls and and it's still I don't know if you've ever seen it. And you would you wouldn't even notice just driving around like you wouldn't unless you were actually look. It just blends in. It blends in, yeah. It blends it's, in.
3: It's gorgeous too. Once it you is so stop gorgeous, and, and, and you at, actually yeah.
1: look. Yeah, it was really cool. And so before we dive into the Ozark Club, what could you what can you tell me about this this church because it is in your article? And, oh and, yeah, and, and it's
2: yeah. and and that was along with the Ozark Club. I think the Union Bethel A M E Church was the other big story that I uncovered, and that started uh, really with the arrival, you know, Great Falls began in that little, very small village of about 50 people in the summer of 1884, when Paris Gibson was operating out of a tent by (laughs) Broadwater Bay, and I mean, the first buildings were being built uh, we believe the first building that was constructed during that period was Vinegar Jones' cabin that today is over in, in uh, uh, Gibson Park. But at that uh, earlier time in 1884 when it was built, uh, it was on Fifth Avenue South, four blocks west of the AME Church. So that was 1884 By 1886, of course, the railroad still hadn't arrived. It wouldn't arrive until a year later, and Great Falls was maybe up to six or 800 people, so it was still a tiny village. But the first two African Americans arrived in uh, 1886, that second year of the town site, Ed and Elizabeth Sims. Uh, Ed had come up on a steamboat to Fort Benton. Uh, he He'd uh, been a slave before the Civil War, he'd been freed and came up on a steamboat. Actually he was working on a steamboat and had a very unusual job for African-American, but after the Civil War many, many blacks were employed as part of the crews of these steamboats operating on the Mississippi and Ohio and on the, on the Missouri River that was coming between St. Louis and, and Fort Benton. And, and if you can imagine a steamboat era when 250 to 350 feet long steamboats fought their way all the way up the Missouri River from St. Louis to Fort Benton, and there at the levee in Fort Benton, you might have as many as, at one time there were nine, um, that was the only time, but there were multiple steamboats often at that levee, and you know, they were carrying uh, from Two hundred fifty to 300, 350 tons of cargo. So it was a massive shipping operation, and of course this was the pre-railroad era. So Ed Sims was what was called the uh, clerk or purser on the steamboat Red Cloud when he came up the river. Uh, That was the second highest position on the boat to the, to the captain, and so he handled all the cargo, all the passengers, and so on. But he got to Fort Benton and decided, you know, I want to start a new adventure out in this frontier Montana territory, and it was a, this was in the 1870s, so we were a new territory. Right. And he went to work a few places out at Fort Shaw for the uh, post trader out there, and so on. In 1886, he went back to St. Louis, married, Elizabeth and brought her and they arrived in Great Falls in summer of 1886. That began the black community in Great Falls, Montana. And so, um, random, not
1: random, but you may not know this. How long did that trip take from St. Louis to Fort Benton on a steamboat? Average, of course, they all, you know, may run into problems or whatever, but how long did that
2: take? Uh, probably 45 days was fast. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes (laughs) as much as two, two months. Uh, much quicker no. going downstream oh yeah absolutely current right, with you right, right. Yeah, and it was only seasonal. Uh, you needed the spring rise. There were no dams on the river, so you needed the steam rise. And that'll be a good topic to talk about sometime. Uh, steamboating. Well, as you're talking areas. about, I'm like, yeah. man, we
1: need to go. <laughs> we, like, we need to have a podcast about steamboats
2: in you Fort bet. Benton,
1: and like record in Fort Benton, right? And like where the steamboats pulled in. Like that'd be super cool. So super who knew cool.
2: today about those steamboats, and yet they were huge in And airport. nine nine. Yeah, Yeah. nine at a time in Fort Benton.
1: So at that point, and I'm not trying to sidetrack, but I'm I'm just following where my brain's going here. 1886 was Fort Benton bigger than Great Falls?
2: Fort Benton never really grew as a city. Um, It was a shipping transportation. So just just a hub. Uh, And and so in the first years of Great Falls, first couple years before the railroad. Uh, Sun River Valley had more people and Fort Benton had more people than that little fledgling town of Great Falls. And in fact, the people in both Sun River and Fort Benton used to talk about the future great was the term, and, and their derogatory term for Great Falls was the future great. Well, the future great began to get even with them with the arrival of the railroad, right. finally, finally in 1887. But, so Ed and Elizabeth Sims settled in the community here, and he, he was an unusual guy. Uh, he, he started a catering business, um, and he was also... Uh, part of the time he was the steward at the most exclusive white men's club in Great Falls, the Electric City Club. And so he had plum positions just because of his. Uh, he was a go getter and he was talented. And for the rest of his life, he led the black community in Great Falls. But getting back to the Union Bethel Church. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, by 1890, there were enough in the black community on that lower south side to uh, to begin to form a congregation for the uh, you know the the African Methodist Episcopal Church had spun off from the Methodist Church uh, back I think in the 1790s in Philadelphia because most of the Methodist churches would not allow black attendance at their services so they started a black church and they patterned it largely after the methodist church so african methodist episcopal church they began meeting in a couple of different places including an old fire fire station that was not being used but by the summer of 1891 they'd been successful in raising the money and Paris Gibson for $1 had sold them the the lot on 9th Avenue on uh, 5th Avenue South 9th Street 5th Avenue South that uh, they built the first African Methodist Episcopal church that church was a wood frame building and the lower south side especially in the area of the church was subject to a lot of flooding in the spring, and mm. they, they still hadn't solved. Great Falls is built on springs all over the city from the very beginning. You know, This is just the geology and the geography of Great Falls. was springs all over the place, not just giant springs. And until they got the springs under control and the flooding under control, they had problems on the south side. Well, uh, by 1916, uh, they had a go pastor uh, of that church, and by then it had been officially named Union Bethel A.M.E. Church. You don't get that name at the very beginning for about a decade. It, it uh, didn't have the name Union Bethel, but they built that uh, brick uh, church that's there today. Uh, so from 1916 until today, that little church has been there on the lower south side, um, it's had good times and bad, uh, it's always been the heart of the black community and it, within the church, the, the, uh, women of the church were always the heart and soul of, of the community and of the church. And, uh, early on they formed what was called the Dunbar Art and Study Club. And the Dunbar Club, named after a famous, uh, black poet, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, um, it It became both a leader in the black community. It was sort of the center of of uh, cultural and social life in the black community because they'd sponsor uh, in addition to fundraisers for the church. They'd sponsor talks on history and on cultural things and how to you know the African American story, really from reconstruction after the Civil War until. Uh, well into the 1900s was one of get an education the more education the more possibility of success in in society so they they pushed uh, that and and uh, by the 1900s they were working on uh, trying to bring down the racial barrier so they were a powerful group within the community and uh, they were all centered there on that uh, black church that uh, was the heart and soul of the black community. There was another black church for some years. The Baptists had a black church. Uh, it was uh, far less uh, powerful within the community, but it, it wasn't a single church. And then, of course, uh, by the mid-1900s, the other churches began to open up. Uh, I mean, if you're Catholic, you probably would be able to attend uh, the Catholic churches and so on, but until then uh, the choices were were the black, <laughs> back black churches in your south south, south side uh, Great Falls where you lived and and uh, you might work as a maid on the north side, but you certainly didn't live there mm. you uh-huh. know if you were uh, and the other jobs open of course were uh, service industry jobs in the hotels, and of course the powerful railroads, first the Great Northern and then the Milwaukee Road employed a huge segment mm-hmm. of the black population. In fact, <laughs> Leo Lamar, that we will soon get to, mm-hmm. uh, came to Great Falls uh, employed by the Great Northern,
0: so. Uh-huh. Whoa. So what did you do in the Navy? You said that you retired out of the Navy?
2: I did. I spent uh, just a year or so short of 30 years on Active duty. I was in naval intelligence the whole time, which was a, a marvelous challenge. Uh, spent a lot of time around the world. Eleven years of sea duty, and dragged my family from uh, Hawaii to uh, Sweden to England to the Philippines, and so we were all over the world. And a great, great career, uh, and and a lot of relationship between history and and naval intelligence. Uh, Usually, uh, you had to do a lot of research, and Mm -hmm. you had to know history to avoid the problems of the past. Ah, yeah. So, uh, sometimes when you'd give a briefing, they'd say, okay, that's enough history, now tell us what's going to (laughs) happen tomorrow, what's going to happen in the future. So, that was always the challenge of, of moving from history into the future, and what was the enemy going to do next,
0: that's interesting. So you spent 30 years kind of, um, in intelligence doing the same sort of research that then, cause I was like, when, when you, uh, introduced your, your story, you're like, well, I got out of the, retired out of the Navy and then got right to work as a historian. And I was like, Whoa, that's okay. Well, what'd you, I wonder what was prompting that, you know? And then I think it's really interesting. Cause I found the same thing when I was just reading your article, I, I found that, um, this is such an under, underrepresented part of our history. And then when you look at even the little bit that is there, you find that it's such a foundational part of our history. Like there's so much that make up who we are today that, you know, we, I think we need to acknowledge, like, uh, as a local musician, I came into that, the, the history museum to see the Ozark club stuff. And I was like, wait a minute, I didn't realize this. There was a jazz culture here that, that's crazy. I like jazz. Why don't I know that? That's I can, grew. I grew up here. Can you
2: imagine that in <laughs> Great Falls, thing. Montana? That some of the best jazz between the Midwest and the West Coast was being played right here in Great Falls, Montana. I cannot. <laughs> and that you know, the, we'll we'll get to it later. But that was the, one of the marvelous things about the Ozark story was uh, when we moved from the story of the past into actually putting on new Nights of the Ozark, uh, patterning the evening after what was done at the Ozark Club, like making everyone welcome.
0: <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. So, um, yeah, where were we? Sorry. Uh, then Leo came on the railroad.
2: Leo came on the railroad, and uh, he was... Uh, by then, he was almost 20 years old. He'd uh, left home... He. One of the great ironies about Leo was that uh, he had an African-American mother, but we didn't know until we found out from his daughters. He was half Chinese. His father was Chinese. Now think about this for a moment. This was at a very time when Great Falls, Montana, from in 1884, when that village first started growing, Chinese were totally excluded from Great Falls. Right. When a Chinese laundryman came in from Sun River to set up a laundry in the fledgling town of Great Falls, within two weeks they'd run him out of town, and that set a pattern where. Uh, don't let the sun set on you was the motto for the Chinese. So here's Leo Lamar with a Chinese father, a, a black mother, and uh, living in Gray Falls, Montana. He was really the first Chinese to live in Gray Falls, Montana. <laughs> wow. wow. I can't and,
0: believe we were a sundown town.
2: Uh. So oh, Leo yeah. arrived. He, he, yes. he, was, he had uh, spent about, by then, here he's only 20, he'd spent about five years successfully boxing in Chicago and Minneapolis and had established a reputation as a tiny but tough little boxer.
0: And a good-looking kid. And just a heck
2: of a good-looking kid with just an amazing personality. And so he gets off the train here at Great Falls and starts uh, setting up shop here and of course he continued to work for the railroad but he started getting involved in in activities here on the Lower South Side. One of the activities and his timing was just right because Great Falls had banned boxing in 1914 but they had brought it back right after World War One and they did it so that funds raised at a boxing match a portion of those funds could be used for a veteran support or help. And so part of each match uh, had to fund veteran activities. And But the legislature had brought it back just in time for his arrival. And so he started boxing. He didn't box very often, but he drew these amazing uh, uh, reviews and you know again you have to get back to what were the newspapers like in in 1920 or 1925 during the height of his boxing career they had real reporters they had reporters who who you know multiple reporters reporting on sports so they'd have a a, a reporter that specialized in boxing And he would write the darndest headlines. And, and, you know, I talked earlier about the dueling newspapers. Well, the Tribune was a morning newspaper. The Leader was the afternoon paper. So how did you distribute that afternoon newspaper? You hired kids out of school in the afternoon to pick up their leaders and go to the street corners all through downtown Great Falls and hawk their leaders. Well, the, the headlines and the stories had to have headlines and story uh, headlines that that were catchy and that the kids could, you know, shout out. So they had the most amazing uh, uh, writers and the, you know, it wasn't just the headline. The whole story would just be a, a work of art and capturing the reader's fancy and, so sports was fun, and, it, and the way it was reported, and the way they reported on, on Leo Lamar and his early boxing in Gray Falls was just—I mean, it's it's just amazing. Uh, so he he began to to acquire a reputation. Well, uh, within a couple of years of his arrival, he'd also uh, he was still working for the railroad. He was fitting in his boxing, but he met the granddaughter of Ed and Elizabeth Sims, Garniel Winburn was her name. And Garniel's dad had been one of the African American uh, young guys that was drafted into World War I. And so uh, as, a, as a black soldier, he went to a segregated unit, served over in France. He'd been gassed in a German attack and suffered a bit from that for the rest of his life, but he was a very talented guy, so she grew up in this family and met Leo Lamar at a pretty young age. I think she was only 16 or 17 when she married Leo, and they were active in the Union Bethel Church. In fact, uh, there's there's a great... uh, nineteen twenty four story about the Christmas program at the union Bethel church and here's Leo Lamar as Joseph and Garneal, his wife as Mary in the Christmas play Whoa. so they were you know they were knee deep in the union Bethel activities so the twenties moved along they had four children uh, they uh Leo continued with the railroad, but uh, that that evil institution of prohibition finally passed in 1933, early 33, or late 33 actually, by the time they could get the laws revised and everything. So Leo opened a club. At that point it was on the lower south side and it was had to be a colored club. Uh, only African Americans admitted, although they loosened that pretty quickly to friends of the African Americans. If they were white, they could be invited in. So uh, the first Ozark Club of Leo Lamar's era opened with him as the owner and manager. He was still working on the railroad, so he had others uh, that ran it when he was out of town. And it was a colored club, and it continued that way through the through the thirties. Unfortunately, in nineteen thirty six, Garniel passed away, uh, actually as she was having a fifth child. So, they, she, and they both passed. They both passed the, the and child yep. and Garniel. Uh, that left Leo with four small children. Um, his his mother in law, of course, was. A, Mrs. Uh, Winburn, uh, Molly Winburn was uh, the daughter of Ed and Elizabeth Sims and she was a a real force within the black community and she was raising those children for Leo when he was out of town and you get through the 30s and uh, before too long uh, on his uh, he was a dining car waiter on the Great Northern, and and the you know you had a routine run that you uh, operated in, and his was between Haver and Butte. So they'd do a he'd do a run from Great Falls to Haver, and then from Haver to Butte, and then back to Great Falls, and then he'd be off for some time. Well, they'd also be off for a day or so in Butte, and when he was in Butte, he started hanging out at the colored club in Butte which was called the Silver City Club and it was it was in in some ways maybe he got some ideas for his own club from it. Um, it it had good music, never the quality or the greatness of the Ozark Club that later developed here but but it was uh, the most popular colored club in Butte, Montana and Butte of course was was a growing huge operation by the 30s and so while he was hanging at the Ozark club he met the owner of course Frank Yammer and the owner's wife Grace had a sister that was going through Butte business college the two of them were from Iowa and had had uh, met up with uh, the owner of the Ozark club, of the uh, Silver City club Frank Yammer and so Grace, the wife of Frank Ammer, introduced Leo to her daughter, or her sister rather, the younger sister, uh, Charlene Beatrice, and they wound up marrying. Uh, Leo was, had a second wife. B was a totally different personality as later events would show. She was not the Union Bethel, Church time at all. <laughs> okay, and uh, as as the club later, do, you know, developed, uh, she was she was really the instigator for uh, much of the dark side that developed out of the Ozark Club. But the pa- the thirties passed, and World War One, World War Two began. Uh, World War Two, of course, was a time of amazing growth here in Great Falls because uh, we had the brand new East Base, the brand new base that became the bomber training base, uh, now called Malmstrom, and we had the commercial airport Gore Field turn into uh, Gore Field Air Base, and that had the 7th Faring Command operating out of it. So two big Air Force Army Air Corps operations going on along with a third and the third was a was a major supply operation uh, supplies for the satellite bases at Lewistown and Glasgow and Cutbank that were mm-hmm. operating during World War two as a adjunct to East Base. and so here you had this major, uh, Army Air Corps build up in Great Falls. You had the Smilder operating night and day, just full bore, putting out all the zinc and copper products that were needed for the war. And Great Falls, literally, you know, by 1945, I think we'd gone from something like 30,000 to 45,000, so, uh, you know, 100. Uh, 15,000 growth in just a few years. Uh, right. house, housing was so short you hear legendary stories of how, you know, how, how how terribly short the housing was and what there's some great fun stories about that and all the while Leo very smart uh, he had by then ended his uh, Great Northern career and he began to of course, he all along had cultivated the leaders of the city. He was probably the only black resident that played golf with the mayor or, or became friends with the chief of police and so on. And so by the the early years of the war, some 300 or so uh, African-American soldiers, Army Air Corps soldiers, uh, reported to East Base, so you had not only the community in downtown Great Falls, but you had the the uh, air base contingent of blacks. So you know you put those two together, you had a much more substantial black community, probably in the five six hundred range, and. What do soldiers do when they have time off? (laughs) They like to dance, listen to music, go to nightclubs. And they couldn't get in the nightclubs. They couldn't go to the restaurants. And so they opened a USO, United Service Organization, for the airmen in Great Falls. But blacks weren't permitted. It was that kind of an environment Uh so the black community hurriedly tried to organize a small black USO but Leo had a better answer Leo had the Ozark Club and he opened it wide open to those black airmen and by then he was getting a much more sophisticated operation he'd had music from the very beginning but it was really modest and during the 1940s is when he developed this entertainment package that became legendary because it included uh, top quality musicians, it included uh, torch singers, it included uh, comedians, it included uh, exotic dancers, (laughs) And, and it was exciting. And so wartime environment and that colored club just overnight transitioned into an interracial nightclub and everyone was welcome. And he would have Saturday morning ads in both the Tribune and Leader and that line, everyone's welcome, was the theme in every ad. But the ads were written, I never found out from his daughters or anyone exactly who wrote those ads. If Leo did it and he likely did himself, uh, it showed a part of his cleverness that I you know I just know was' there because his ad would play off the latest thing. If it's a national conventions for the two r- Republican and Democrat parties, he'd have a play off that. If later in the 1950s, if it was the space race with the Russians, the ad would play off of that and so on. So, you know, his ads didn't just advertise those exotic dancers or torch singers or whatever, but they catch your eye because of the clever way they were presented in the context of current events. And, and so the club began to get more and more popular. And of course, at wartime, uh, 1945, uh, before the end of the war, Joe Lewis, the reigning uh, world champion heavyweight boxer, a black boxer, uh, was in the Army, but he was in the Army as a fundraiser and as a morale booster Mm -hmm. to go around the bases around the country and overseas. And he came to Great Falls, Montana, and the Army Air Corps leadership at both East Base and Gore Hill, wined and dined him during the day. They'd introduce him at lunches, and he'd get a little talk. And But what was he going to do at night? Because they wouldn't take him to those downtown nightclubs that wouldn't let blacks in. He was off on his own. He went to the Ozark Club, and he danced with one of the daughters of Leo Lamar, Sugar. Her nickname was Sugar. And Sugar has photos of her dancing with Joe Lewis. Mm. Uh, Lewis would be sitting with uh, B and and Leo Lamar in a little back room at the Ozark Club. It was actually the gambling room. And then the day after he'd be there, he'd be standing by the Union Bethel AME Church because he'd be invited to visit the church. So, you know... The same thing was true with the Harlem Globetrotters or any group that came to Grey Falls. Uh, they they couldn't, you know, they just hung at the nightclub at the Ozark Club. That's where the action was, and that's where they were welcome. And the, they're just all sorts of great stories. One of one of the coolest, I think. Uh, and I got a lot of these stories not only from the newspapers but from. Uh, either, well, I guess they were all descendants of the participants, like the Lamar sisters. Uh, Sugar, Bunny, and Molly were the three daughters that had uh, left Great Falls um, and had not been back to Great Falls since the funeral of their father in 1962. And, And they lived in Los Angeles. And when we talk later about the recreated nights at the Ozark. I'll talk more about them, but uh, found a lot about both photos that they had and stories they had, but also from some of the uh, African-American residents here here in Gray Falls. June Elliott, uh, her mother, worked at at the Ozark Club. Uh, She ran the snack counter they had snacks, uh, that they served sandwiches and things like that. And so Marguerite Elliott, her mother, operated that. And so one night in the 1950s when June was a young teenager, her mother got her into the club and set her in the back. And that was the night that uh, Lionel Hampton and his big band had been on their way from Denver to... Uh, Calgary, to perform in Canada. And they found they couldn't make the border before closing. The border had, uh, I think, a midnight closing. So they came back to Great Falls. They called Leo and said, we'll be glad to play at the club. Here's the big band in the little tiny club. And uh, so Leo called the chief of police at home and explained the situation and said, they won't be able to get here until after the closing hour, there was a nighttime closing hour for the clubs and then they had to stay closed until I think it was eight o'clock in the morning. And Leo called that chief of police at home and got permission as long as they come in and you lock the door and you don't open again until eight o'clock in the morning, they can do whatever they want in the club. And so there was Lionel Hampton (laughs) and his big band blasting jazz through the Ozar Club throughout wow. the night and and June was said she was like a little mouse sitting in the corner listening to this fabulous music. so you know stories like that from those that still lived in the Great Falls area or that returned uh, to to have a part in the recreated stories uh, really made. You know, we wouldn't have known stories like that. That kind of thing didn't make the newspaper, and yet, right? Right. Yet, yet the and, oral histories did. So.
1: And so, I'm picturing you like calling Leo's daughters in Los Angeles. Like, is that is that what actually happened? That's what that's what the picture in my brain.
2: Yeah, the history museum. Well, we're we're kind of jumping ahead, but uh, it's it's a really important part of the story because. Uh, when when you start researching, you're looking for not only information but you're looking for photos. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, there there were no four photos of the Ozark Club at the history museum, and the history oh. M- museum is the Cascade County Historical Society. So, yes, yep, yep. if if there's going to be photos any place, it's most likely going to be there. And the, of course, the Montana Historical Society didn't have any photos of the Ozark Club. The the one photo that the Ozark uh, that the History Museum had was of the Ozark Club the night of the fire in 1962 when it was burning down. So I mean that was it. So uh, when it got to access to photos, uh, Chris Morris and uh, Linda Shore who then worked at the History Museum as as kind of the uh, cultural, uh, display designer uh, got hold of uh, the Lamar sisters as did I and and they were very forthcoming. I mean they sent uh, enough photos that when we did have the recreated nights at the Ozark, uh, we I had uh, a large display of photos of the black community around Great Falls in one area and then they with photos that the Lamar sisters had provided, had this amazing display centered on the Ozark Club. And it was photos like uh, Goose Tatum and the Globetrotters uh, signing a photo while they were sitting in the Ozark Club. And, of course, Joe Lewis and his visit to the club. And... All of these things that they knew about, the Lamars knew about, but nobody else did. And nobody else had access to those photos. So
1: so are the girls still alive?
2: uh, Sugar passed away about two years ago. I, I used to talk to Sugar every month or a couple months because some subject would come up related to black history, and I'd think, ah, oh, Sugar will know the answer to that. <laughs> she was absolutely amazing in, in, in both her personality and her, and her knowledge. But uh, she passed away, so now when I have a question, I, I talk to, uh, to Bunny. Uh, Ma- the two that came were Sugar and and Bunny. Uh, Molly was not in good health when, when in 2007 we had the recreated nights at the Ozark. So we never met uh, Molly, but uh, she she and Bunny still live together in, in Los Angeles. And some of their uh, uh, children and, and a couple of the great-grandchildren came with Sugar and Bunny in 2007, and so I stay in touch with a couple of those uh, more uh, younger descendants than uh, bunny and and Molly and,
1: and well and I and I only ask because um, it's kind of like in the nick of time right that that you came along to start gathering some of this history and maybe I, I don't want to Uh, give you a big head or anything but you know there might have been some other people doing the same thing but like had you not reached out we might be missing like large chunks of of especially black history but I feel like great 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 balls history
2: well and it was more than great Falls history too as it turned out and and you're right I I kind of started a a crusade that that's turned out really well um one of my early really good friends when I got moved back here uh, is African-American Bob Harris. He's retired Air Force and uh, Bob and I had a mutual love of history and while, while I was sitting there doing uh, microfilm research, a, a number of times he'd stop by and we'd be talking and anyway uh, about 2004 so a couple of years after I started all this Bob and I arranged to go to the Montana Historical Society in Helena and they were no doing nothing in black history it was it was as bad as the rest as Great Falls the whole state was
1: as late as 2004
2: as late as 2004 wow. so we met with uh, four or five of the staff members from the Montana Historical Society and I challenged them to focus on black history and start uh, surveying their holdings. I mean, this is Montana's museum. It's a massive museum. In fact, there's a new Montana Heritage Center under construction today that's going to build physically uh, beyond where they are today. But... So Montana Historical Society has this gigantic collection, photos, uh, documents. Uh, it, it is our, truly our historical cache, and they picked right up on that challenge. And within a, a year or so, they had gotten the first of what's turned out to be a continuing series of grant monies to... Uh, Focus a part of their effort, and so they created uh, uh, Montana Black Heritage uh, section of their website, and you know within several years it it began to emerge as a really important collection of information. First, they surveyed all the photos and. As much information in their collection as they could and highlighted exactly what they had. And then they began to build uh, other uh, research aids and they developed uh, teacher uh, lesson plans for African American, presenting African American history to students. So the Montana Historical Society kind of kick started by Bob and me have just done an amazing job. I think they were just kind of waiting for somebody to, to get them started because they have, uh, they have carried it to a great extent. One thing we've totally not neglected, and it, it, I don't know how far along in the podcast we are, but before we run out of time, we need to talk about the music. Um, Yes, yes, let's do that.
1: You're going to perk Joe's ears right up. Bob
2: Bob May Bain showed up uh, in Great Falls after the war. He had this, this black musician, grew up in Tennessee, and before World War II, he had joined the last big national black band to be formed in the country, Jay McShane's band, and they called him Hootie McShane. Hootie McShane developed this new sound. It's called bebop or bop. And it was a technique that broke the tradition of jazz music where the same musician would play the same jazz song the same way in every performance. And giving freedom to that jazz musician was all about what Hootie McShane was after. So he formed this band uh, and signed up Bob May Bain on tenor sax, Charlie, Bird, Parker on alto sax, probably the first big band that Bird had ever been with. And they played this amazing Bebop. and
0: Was Charlie Bird playing here when this was happening? Was he what? I was was trying to follow along. So Hootie McShane. This is in
2: Kansas City. This is when the band was formed by McShane. Okay. In Kansas City before World War II. The war came and the band broke up. Uh, First, uh, Bird left. Charlie
0: Bird was playing, Bob Maybane, and then Hootie McShane or McShane.
2: Mc, McShane. McShane, okay. I'm trying to look him up here. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, he was the leader of the band, uh, the, the organizer of it. Uh, and and so the band disbanded because of World War II. Gotcha. Bob went into the Army. I'm sure some of the others did. After the war, Bob spent some time around Denver and then wound up in Great Falls, Montana. And, of course, as a musician and black, he couldn't join the Musicians' Union. Right, okay. So he went to work with Leo at the Ozark Club and very quickly took over what Leo already had established, which was called the Ozark Boys. Uh Um, Chuck Reed had been a a really good uh, hammer-em type pianist (laughs) that was uh, leading the band. Bob came in and took it over, and uh, Chuck Reed stayed with him. Um, And they started a whole revolution in in music. Uh, because of Bob I Bain's reputation and his talent, it wasn't just the quality of the music of the Ozark Boys, but it was the fact that in those days, of course, the railroad between the Midwest and the, and the West Coast was booming, I mean, Everybody traveled on the trains, and and the Chitlin Circuit was the black uh, musicians and entertainers from the Midwest on their way to the West Coast, and it was easy to hop off at Gray Falls, Montana, and spend because we actually had passenger trains here then. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna point that out yeah. when you were talking about
1: Leo Lamar, and he's be, he's on the dining car. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Trains didn't just bring stuff everywhere they brought people you know because we barely have that anymore i've been on a train one time in my entire life and it was like an experience and and we went from glasgow montana to malta and back just to say that we've been on a train
2: oh i'll be darned
1: because it's it's just so unheard of now but back then like that was the mode of transportation that
2: was the way you traveled and here here were all these uh, black musicians looking for uh stops uh, along the way and and so that's when uh leo and bob A Bain together put that entertainment to package t- t- together that from the late 1940s through the 50s into the early 60s just ruled montana jazz and that's when they had uh, the entertainers like miss wiggles the most <laughs> yeah. popular uh, strip teaser ever to hit uh, Montana, yeah. and they had uh, great musicians like Oscar Denard and, and and a musician by the name of Ellsworth Brown. And Ellsworth Brown was this marvelous musician. had a had an awfully good band leader, but he had played with the Ozark Boys and played uh, at the at the Ozark Club for a good while. And then in two thousand seven when we had the second and third recreated Ozark Nights, uh, Dartanian Brown, his son, was recruited by Phil Auberg to come play at the Ozark Club, at our Nights at the Ozark Club. And Dartanian didn't know until I pointed out that his dad, Ellsworth, had performed at the Ozark Club. He thought that was... I mean, here, this, this son was playing where his dad had... I mean, not at the physical club, because right, it had right. burned down, but yeah. at the idea of the Ozark Club, it was just marvelous. So uh, this was the kind of thing that Bob May had been able to attract the talent. And uh, there's young Red Fox coming to off the train to spend a couple weeks with his really young, uh, raunchy comedy routine, uh, I've got photos of Red Fox at the Ozark Club and, you know, it it, it just was a kind of a breeding ground for young talent, but also, uh, like I said, guys like uh, Lionel Hampton and his band played there. So uh, this, this is pretty amazing. And, and all the while, this is a tiny club. It's not very large. And it's on the lower south side, and you know, in the in in my story that's in Montana cultural medley, uh, here's here you're you're going to the Ozark Club. You walk a couple blocks because there's cars, there's Hudsons and Studebakers parked back to back on all the streets, and so you have to park a few blocks away. And, you get there and you walk up this dark, narrow staircase. First thing everybody that had been there talked about was going up a dark, narrow staircase. And maybe somebody'd meet you at the top, and in some cases it might be Margarita, Marguerite uh, Elliot. In other cases it was one of, uh, one of Leo's men and uh, one of the prominent ones that uh, used to... Uh, check IDs we found out from Sugar and Bunny was actually illiterate he couldn't read or write so he was the one checking IDs it was all an act <laughs> Leo demanded a, an orderly peaceful club unlike the Silver City that was a really rough club in uh, in Butte. Uh, once Leo started, left the railroad and started full-time, he demanded peace. And uh, hmm. and and they didn't push drinks. Uh, and if they were younger, they often would let them sit there and listen to the music. And it was guys like uh, teenage John Huber, who was uh, at Central Catholic High School. I think he was 16-year-old. John Huber that uh, would come on Sunday afternoon invited by Bob Maybane because the band would play and the whole entertainment package would play six nights a week. They'd have three sets six nights a week. On Sunday afternoon, you had a jam session and that jam session was really something because those white musicians from the other big nightclubs around Great Falls, uh-huh. loved to come and play with Bob A. Bain and the Ozark Boys. And that's when we discovered uh, Jack Mahood, this farmer from, uh, from Big Sandy who would hop on what he called the Galloping Goose, the Great Northern train from, from Big Sandy to Great Falls on a Friday evening, and then he'd hit the club scene over the weekend and he was an alto sax player good enough that Bob May Bain invited him to play at those jam sessions. One time in 1950, Jack Mahood brought a recorded device which is a one-time recording uh, machine and set it up and during that jam session they recorded, I think it was about 20 discs and there's Bobby Bain and Jack Mahood and whole, some of the white musicians around Gray Falls, some of the Ozark boys, all jamming at the Ozark Club.
0: Where can I find this recording?
1: I was say, do, 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 where, where do we get that? Where what? Where can we find that recording?
2: You can find the recordings. <laughs> Phil Auburg, our musical treasure, um, took the... Discs, they're red discs that are at the History Museum today. Um, you can see the original discs, but they were scratchy and not good quality. Phil Auburg spent an immense amount of time remastering those, got rid of the static, and they are great sound. And you can get them from Sweetgrass Music. There's, there's CD that uh, Phil put out uh, Night at the Ozark, and it's a combination of uh, remastered. I think he has one or so of the unremastered, so you hear the original sound, and then some about the uh, the, the uh, Dartanian Brown group that's playing in the background. So. That
3: sounds like his website, is it? He's he's a pianist. Yeah, it
1: it came right up and started playing music as I was trying to find it.
0: You know, I love this story because um, that's the story of jazz, you know, like it, it, you know, even though we were in uh, lots of, we were under segregation, you know, there's the black part of town, there's the white part of town, you can't mingle unless, you know, oh, the dark night at the Ozark, but then there's the jam sessions too, you know, where like the white musicians would know, well, there's. Bob Maybane over there. We want, to, we want to play with the best of the best. Like Absolutely. It doesn't, doesn't matter what color you are because our ears are the things that are, are drawing us over. And I just, I, I love that because to hear the stories of the musicians, you know, they would always say that, like, you know, I know we're not supposed to go over there. It was seen as this or it was seen as that, but we just didn't care. We didn't even give it a second thought. We exactly. just liked the music. Exactly. And I feel like um, even though Leo Lamar uh, was getting into some things like gambling and maybe, you know, um, sex worker activities, that sort of thing.
2: Leo didn't. It was B, that evil evil B. Oh, blame it on the woman. (laughs) I I, I I discovered this
1: later, too, that like it was his, you know, property. It was his building, but she was a madam.
0: Oh, gotcha. Okay.
1: And so she was the one. Yeah, in charge of that stuff. Right? Well,
0: she was in business school, though, right? Remember when he met her? She was in. She
2: she ran the business well.
0: Oh, that's right. So she knew what she was doing. <laughs> <laughs> but he,
1: but he, but he may not have gotten into that side of things. But he right. did get into the gambling side of things. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which was perfectly do, legal. That do, was all above board, right?
2: Actually, at the time, um, it. For a while it was, and then it wasn't, and they did it both, while, you know, both before and after. <laughs> Do we have time to for me to read a paragraph, I think? Yeah, so, that's for sure. So,
1: so what I have to say is currently the time is 11.17 a.m., and I think you're the only one with a hard stop, and so it's up to you okay. how, how long we go.
2: Okay. Well, this is this is uh, from Montana Culture Medley, and I have a chapter in there called Breaking Racial Barriers. Everyone's welcome at the Ozark Club.
1: One second. I want to just tell everybody that I found this on Amazon. So if you look down in the show notes, you can find a link down there to purchase it on Amazon. I'm and it's assuming it's yet. also, in also available in the gift shop. At the history museum, and the yeah. links for all of that will be down there. But you can always just stop into the history museum now.
2: History museum and Cassiopeia Books both. Yeah, oh. there
1: you go. Okay. okay. Yes. Yeah. All right. Just yeah. just forget yeah. Amazon. They
0: don't even have it there. So
1: that link won't be that link won't be available. Um, it just I, when I just exist. checked the link, it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> yeah. And so you're gonna have to walk into one of those two places. Yeah, it's a terrible business. Yeah. So. And so okay. So as you're reading this, if like people want to read museum. more, they'll yeah. be able to find it. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead.
2: For the next decade, the Ozark Boys took the stage every night except Sunday with piano, drums, and tenor sax, playing their theme song, Jumpin' with Symphony Sid, and moving on to jazz classics like Body and Soul as well as new tunes. The band played without sheet music and with plenty of verve and a search for style. An observer in 1960 wrote, the musicians may be wildly happy, but more often, They're tense and serious while they play. On an old timer like sweet Georgia Brown, the sax player's eyes are tightly shut while his instrument wails and sobs. The drummer's eyes are large and serious. The drum beats come like explosions, like staccato bursts of gunfire. The piano player hunches over his keyboard mouthing words while his foot taps and fingers ramble over the bass keys. With smooth coordination, the solo jumps from one player to another, smooth yet spontaneous. This is real art, and it has been years in the making. Mm. Mm. That's the music at the Ozark Club.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah, that bebop stuff is no joke. Like, as within jazz bebop is just known as it's super hard basically it's it's faster it's um it's just it, it requires more of you it takes practice you, I can't, you have to I be can't, creative
2: yeah I mean to, to play a different uh, the same song a different way every time you play it yep yeah, yeah creative on demand it, it's yeah it's absolute creativity
3: so is that like you get that kind of technical it's really active you got instruments like wild like is that yep okay
2: Yep, yep.
1: Yeah, and so what I want to say is we, you know, we're recording this in uh, you know the, the middle of March. This is going to come out in April. In that amount of time, we're going to look for some of this um, original recordings. Oh yeah. And so around the time that this comes out, uh, look on our Instagram, and you'll be able to uh, hopefully be able to find uh, an example of this actual music.
2: Add some at the end. R- right. Oh, and
1: we could actually add some at the at the end too. After cool. we say goodbye, stick yeah. around. And yeah. we'll, we'll add it right to the end of this podcast so you can hear it. Absolutely. Sure thing.
0: Yeah.
2: Sounds we fun. We can do that. Yeah, it's that'll fun.
1: be fun. Yeah, that would be really cool. I, I yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear that, well, okay, here we go. Did the white community also bring in a bunch of artists? Because honestly, it seems like Leo Lamar, um, these, these guys were the ones bringing people in did the did the white community, like, were they attracting anybody at all, or was it, oh, was gosh, it really yeah. Leo, you yeah. know?
2: No, I mean, it wasn't just Great Falls. I think uh, spread around Montana, uh, different clubs would, would bring in uh, top-notch bands. I know, for instance, uh, of a time when uh, Louis Armstrong and his band came to perform at the uh, Civic Center and they had to they couldn't eat <laughs> any place, so so they they hired a, a kid to go get sandwiches for the band wow uh, and you know the other clubs uh like the 3D and so on had uh some of the big bands come they had some uh, black bands as well as as white bands uh Great Falls jazz was pretty renowned. Uh, the th- thing that just makes the Ozark Club stand a p- couple feet higher, maybe, mm-hmm. was because of the whole interracial aspect. It was a time when, when that one place in Great Falls had broken racial barriers that nowhere else in the city uh, were they being broken that early. Uh, mm. Of course, once you know, in 1954, Alma Jacobs, the great librarian, who was African American, uh, she had gone through Great Falls High School. Uh, the schools in Great Falls were always uh, quite welcoming for African American students. Although a lot of uh, a lot of those kids from the lower south side didn't make it into high school, they had to go to work, but. Alma did, and uh, her siblings did. And uh, Alma went to segregated uh, Talladega College in Alabama, and came back to Great Falls in 1946, and was hired as catalog librarian. And then uh, eight years later, when the head librarian (today we'd call her a director; they didn't call her a director then, but it was the head librarian) retired, Alma was hired on an interim basis as head librarian because Uh they thought they needed to test the waters to see if the staff, all white staff would uh, support that and whether the community would support it. Well, they right. sure as heck did. Uh, Alma, huh. we, we need a whole story on that uh, Alma Jacobs story as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Um, I would love that. Yeah, we, we agree. We agree. So uh, we'll leave most of Alma's story. But she joined during the war, during World War II, there was uh, the beginnings of interracial Councils with the city leadership and the base leadership beginning to try to uh, break down racial barriers. That really didn't make much progress until the 1950s, and it really didn't fully get into progress until a combination of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1972 Montana, new Montana Constitution that had uh, really powerful statements about uh, racial and other equality. So uh, stories for another day.
0: Okay. But that, that that is more than, I mean, I don't want to say it's plenty, but it's so much. It's uh, what, a, what a cool treat it is to have you in here because you have so much information. And um, I'm starting to get to the idea that it's kind of like we had our own Jimi Hendrix. You know, like what if Jimi Hendrix or some super famous you know person <laughs> with an gr- amazing skill that um, was very popular at the time. He came and just you know wanted to work here, you know, just liked the town and wanted to set up shop here. And there was a great opportunity to work six nights a week, three times a day. And to hear that Jimi Hendrix was working in Great Falls, well, we'd have, I mean, we'd have hundreds of guitar players come in here just to try to sit in and just to hang out. And, and if there was that sort of show, well, that would bring more people just looking to get into one of those other, maybe the afternoon show or something that, like that.
2: And that was May Bain, exactly. Bob May exactly,
0: Maybane. So that yeah. that makes so much sense to me, and it's just um, I feel really lucky that uh, we get to learn about this because I'm from Sims. I grew up here, and this is the first I'm hearing of it. You know, I, I, it just feels like um, we're in a stereotypical sort of Montana town. Very, uh, we like our country music. We like uh, there's it seems like there's a, mostly white people here. And it, so, so
1: while on that exact note, I want mm-hmm. I looked real quick as we were here, and I looked up where uh so not all of our listeners are in montana we're kind of all over the world but i looked in the united states and uh some of the top cities where we have listeners san francisco dallas and weirdly ashburn virginia um all of those uh san francisco is eight percent black ashburn virginia six dallas is 24 great falls is 0. 0.6 mm. so when we so when we look at that and we we're, we're you know, maybe maybe being judgmental about like having no black history all the way even up until two thousand four, you're thinking that like I think I, I maybe maybe the black community has shrunk a little bit since you know the '40s and '50s and World War it's II grown, and things like. It's that. grown significantly, and so at right now we're at point six percent. I think that's and that's just to kind of bring everybody's mentality yeah. into it that you understand that like montana and and this area of the country not just montana well, actually I hold know. on i
0: think he's trying to say that that isn't a, a right number like you shouldn't then spread that around and bring them into that mentality because that's an incorrect number
2: i think i think you're probably looking at the city because the uh, base, popu- city. base yeah, population not montana. is so what, he, no, what he's saying is it has grown significantly it's not small from population is is separate and the, oh, air, the air gotcha, force tra- gotcha, okay. traditionally has kept, uh, I'd say, f- between five and ten percent of Malmstrom, uh, African Amer- African American, and yeah. so anyway, we don't need to play numbers to oh, say. Yeah, well, but, but the the I, I just want to say that
1: nationally, we have a, a much lower percentage we, we, of African Americans than the, rest, yeah, than the rest of the country. Yep. So that's that's where you get some of this mentality. And I actually think that that Montana is actually, um, at least from my experience less racist than the rest of the country I've been in and so it's not a racist thing it's just a it's more of a percentage thing is where it gets into is that like white people are making white history and you're not really cognitive of it and so I'm happy that that you have come along because it's the same thing that's attracted us to this story is that like man this, this, this is such a rich part of our culture it needs to be heard it needs to be known and it needs to be Continued on, so that so that we know. Like we we've even toyed with the idea of starting a jazz night in honor of this, right? Oh. Like like one night cool. a year we could do like a jazz night and and bring in some some jazz musicians. I know we have some here in town too, and and just kind of honor and, and remember and, and t- tell some of the history of, of this. And I th- I think it would be so much fun. And so anyway, I, through all of that, all I was just saying is just to try to bring some of the people that aren't in Montana. Don't walk around in the streets and, and kind of see everything kind of where, where we were at in that.
2: When you do that, uh, let me know, because I'll put you in touch with Phil Auberg, and I know he would support that kind of an effort. He's, he's, he's marvelous about promoting jazz throughout Montana, especially with youth groups. Well, and wouldn't it,
1: wouldn't it be fun to do at the History Museum?
3: That would be fun. And you guys need to make sure to come to Jazz Night this year, too.
0: Okay. Is it on the calendar already?
3: Uh, yes, we have a, oh gosh, I just printed the save the date in our newsletter. So we'll, we'll, we'll have that online soon. Yeah, just email it over and is. we'll try to put it up, put yeah. that in the show S-
2: notes. September.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's September. September. Um, I think it's a Friday night this year. I'd have to double check. But yeah, and we're going, I know if um, anybody joined us for the last couple years for Jazz Night, we had a really cool John Roberts, Pan Blanco, Afro-Cuban style jazz and now we're going like like a little quieter like a little smoother kind of music are, so are, are, people, cool. are people dancing cool. yes oh my gosh it was insane okay <laughs> everybody was dancing and so the this one might be a little bit different and so we're excited to kind of keep that variety okay going. okay yeah
2: yeah awesome and of course i keep pushing the history museum to get back to real nights at the ozark and and let phil albergh uh, work with them to uh to bring nationally prominent uh, African American jazz bands in—that's oh, yeah. money, and I know that's you know one of the concerns of the History Museum, but it's uh, going to happen. I hope. Yeah,
0: I'd help with that. That oh, sounds cool. fun. Yeah, just I let have. me know if there's any sort of any sort of group of people trying to make that happen, and I'll I'll show up with with uh, I don't know some ideas. Yeah, oh, <laughs> cool, cool. <laughs> I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. make some calls for you guys if you want. <laughs>
1: And I and I know I interrupted a thought that you had because you were, but it was just right in line of what I was I was researching when you were just talking about. Um percentage of the black community. I, I was trying to get you back on track. I'm sorry. I, oh, I, got, I was just I
0: saying to to that um, I feel really lucky that we get to have the, this because we've also noticed that there's a hole in the history. Like when I grew up here, I learned the history of this area. I've never heard any of this. Okay. And it seems like this is a very prominent and super important part of our history. And it was just kind of almost a shame that we were not, well, let's call it it. It's a shame that it wasn't more prominent. And so it's really cool to be able to be at least helping a little bit to get the word out there even if it's just a few more of our listeners that know about this now and maybe they'll talk to someone that they were related to here in Great Falls and they'll make a call and then maybe we'll get an email or something and someone's gonna say hey did you know about this and well maybe we'll find another treasure of hist- Great Falls history that we didn't know about.
2: You know there's there's a good uh, example of how what a, what a chord the Ozark Club strikes and that is in 2007 when we we're leading into the first night at the Ozark, first of seven, by the way, we had seven over a couple of year period, um, but the Tribune, um, Karen Ogden, uh, carried a story about the Ozark Club based on information from the History Museum and me and so on. and. Um, So the Tribune had this very prominent story, actually kind of a series of stories on that was our club and the jazz and so on. That sparked the greatest response to a Tribune article that they had ever had up to that point. And it was was responses from Alaska to Washington, D.C. that just came flooding in with uh, memories of people that had been there, or ones that were fascinated by it, and it it just sparked such a such a great uh, fire. And then that night in on the seventh of June, two thousand seven, when Chris Morris, the then director of the History Museum, stood before the crowd of. Over 300 capacity crowd with, by the way, 400 on the waiting list that hadn't been able to get tickets, which is why we then in September, this was June, September had two more nights at the Ozark. But anyway, Chris got up before the crowd and asked how many had been to the original Ozark. This is 2007 when the club burned down in 1962. Right, right. So decades and decades later. Yeah. And a quarter of the hand shot up. Whoa. It was just stunning. Oh, that's amazing!
1: <laughs> wow,
0: it's something to be proud of. You know, it's something that I think we should hold in high esteem and advertise about our fair, fair city. You know, absolutely. <laughs> right.
2: In in fact, I'm working with the, uh, it's the Diversity and Integrity Council out at Malmstrom uh, and NeighborWorks uh, to put up a couple of. Uh, interpretive signs at the location of where the ozark club was today it's a parking lot Ah. but the owners of the parking lot are allowing us to put interpretive signs in place so at least there'll be a a marker when you hear about the club and you go and you know it's burned down but you can go and read about it and see some photos that would be something and
1: which parking lot is this If we we describe it here.
2: It's it's on 3rd Street South, and it's like uh, 116 or 118 3rd Street South. So it's next to the five-story Great Falls Drug Building that stands out on the lower south side because it's five stories. (laughs) Right,
1: Right. Cool. We'll have to go find it. Yeah, I, I I think I know, like U.S. Bank. Yeah, I think I think I know. Yeah, what we're there's about there's
2: right. a law firm in in the building next to it, and then the five story, uh, and I've forgotten the law firm, but anyway, there's so oh, there's like two two buildings.
3: Yeah, it, it, is that right? Graybill, and then uh, that Studio Bar place is in yeah. Right. That oh,
0: right across the street from Kellergeist, isn't it? Yeah. Uh huh. Okay, mm-hmm. right across the street from Kellergeist, and
2: it's right around the corner from. Uh, What's the uh, Western men's store? Hoglands, uh, no, Hoagland's, Hoagland's, oh, no. Hoagland's right, right next to Because the, Hoagland's building was the Lamar Hotel. And uh, that's where Leo, oh, okay. Okay. Uh, on the second floor, Leo and his family had a suite of rooms, and they housed the street, mus- I mean, they're visiting musicians there. And then in another section is where B had her, Operation. <laughs> Brothel. Lady, ladies of the night operation. Yeah. So
0: the Hoagland store used to be the Lamar, Lamar Brothel. Hotel. Wow. That's a, I just bought a scarf from there.
1: Yeah, we were just in Hoagland. Little well, did you, you know the How, history of yeah. that scarf. How close to so the
2: now were you?
1: <laughs> so close. And so, and so Leo, Leo owned kind of that, I mean, uh, it, it, essentially a block right there, but it, it was split by, by first right but he he kind of owned that or third i'm sorry
2: split by third oh, He just owned the two buildings okay yeah which
1: would have been did it go all the way to the did the hotel go all the way to the corner
2: no the, there was actually Geiger's repair shop that was on the south side and actually on the corner okay and that's where the parking lot is well the parking lot also is where the hotel was because it was never rebuilt the the uh not the hotel, but the Ozark Club. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> oh, wait! Quick question. So, Farron's Furniture—that was a hotel as well, right? Right next to Hoglands? I don't know. Is that the same?
0: I think they're connected.
1: O- right? Building, the, yeah. The, the building. It, it looks like it from as I'm looking on Google Maps. It looks like Farron's and Hoglands are the same,
2: essentially the, the same building. They were separate businesses. They may be. They built buildings as blocks in those mm-hmm. days, and they may be part of a block mm-hmm. that had more than one business in it. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Gotcha. Yeah.
3: They're cool buildings. Oh, uh, that's super cool. <laughs> and so
1: then, in that uh, across the street from Hoglands and uh, Kellergeist, in that parking lot, there's going to be an interpretive signs, signs to to you know with some pictures like you brought in here. Yeah, exactly. And it'll describe what. We, oh, that is super cool. Yeah, that is really cool.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, and I think I think we're we're really close to your your cutoff time, so I think yep. we're at a we're at a perfect spot. We are going to do the best we can. Either you won't have any music at the end of this, or you will. But after we say goodbye, stick around because we're hoping that we can get the music and uh, uh, clip it right onto the end of this. But after we say goodbye, stick around for a minute or two and and check out the the bebop.
0: Yeah, the bebop man. We're gonna to try to find the coolest, coolest track for you. You're gonna listen to some authentic jamming Great Falls jazz, and we're gonna to try to bring it back too. I just feel like it's. I don't know how soon we're gonna be able to do that, but it's now on the calendar. <laughs> no, it's now not on the calendar. It's on the it's imaginary the, calendar. It's on the imaginary calendar. But I haven't. And- <laughs>
1: And I was, I was telling Ashley before we uh, hit record that um, we're kind of on this kick right now that we want at least like one history podcast a month that, that's coming out. Cool, and cool. so kind of stick around. We're going to keep following this bunny trail. I really want to get into the librarian.
0: Yeah. Alma like, oh, yeah. like Alma. Civic leader.
2: I have yeah. one more thing to add. Oh, let's add it. So May 12th, Thursday evening at 6 o'clock at the Great Falls Public Library. It will be Black Heritage evening. Normally, we have it in February, but because of COVID, we postponed it to May. And at that, we'll be playing some jazz and we'll, be, we'll have uh, soul food and uh, African-American culture history and so on on display. So that that from- is not
1: on the imaginary calendar. I mean, that's that's on our real calendar. There's intent there. Yeah. Yeah, oh, you will definitely see us
2: try there. And, try and stop Curt- me from going to that. <laughs>
1: so so um, May 12th at what time? Six o'clock. Six o'clock.
2: In the accordingly room, which is that basement room in the library. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll be celebrating all things in the black community. Oh, we're in. Yeah, we're in. We're there.
0: And if you like what you hear, you should be in too, their fair listener. Come on, join us.
1: We we appreciate your guys' time, Ashley Ken. Thank you so much uh, oh, for you. joining us. This uh, was fun. It was
3: it was an absolute delight. Little sponge over here, just absorbing everything. Me too. So I'm cool. like yeah. I have like
0: six now tabs open on my computer here. I'm like God, yes. I have so much to look up. Yeah,
1: and, uh, yeah. <laughs> so by, by the time this post, <laughs> like check the check the show notes because we're gonna have we're gonna have links down there for everything. Ken, I also have to add. I look forward to having you back on, because. Um, you, you you can tell that this is something that you are passionate about and it's it's like when someone talks to me about like hunting or fishing I just know the information right I don't have to look anything up I don't have to I know the maker of my boots and my bow like you know like this was your own history and and you speak it like that as well you're very articulate um, very clear, and I, I just appreciate having you on and being able to, like, now Now we have this forever, this, this you know, audio history of of Leo Lamar, and I know we'll dive into more of it the next time you're on, too, but I, I just appreciate it. Anytime someone gives time, it's, it's the most valuable thing we have, and so I appreciate it. And that goes for everybody listening, too. If you have a friend uh, that you think might want to hear that enjoys history, you have that history nerd or history buff, whatever you call them that's derogatory, that cool person in your life that knows history better than you, uh, send them a link and and share because sharing is caring. Mm -hmm, And we appreciate all of you. I've been Brian. I've been Joe. We'll
0: We'll see you you
1: next show. show.